I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about. I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. And... This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that's so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, the price of war. When you work for the State Department, your main job is to try and prevent wars from starting. But with the Iraq war, we realized that the war writing was on the wall. As inevitable as war feels at times, there's always the option not to fight. But in the case of Iraq in 2003, Cale Weston says America's diplomatic attempts to avoid that war failed by design. I was in New York City at the U.S. mission to the United Nations when former Secretary of State Colin Powell made his presentation to the United Nations Security Council. I was actually there in the room. Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort to disarm as required by the international community. So at that point, there were two tracks going on. One was the, the march to war, which I think the George W. Bush administration uh, pretty much wanted to do. And then I think there was the diplomatic track. I was literally a diplomatic foot soldier, but I did have the top secret security clearance. I did have guards at our mission in New York who were Marine reservists. And I'll always remember one of them telling me this was probably two or three months before the bombs started to fall in Baghdad that he had basically been told, hey, this is the, the way we're going to be getting, you know, into Baghdad. The military already had the roadmap to war in Iraq. Cale Weston thought it was a mistake. So did enough other countries that the UN Security Council did not endorse the invasion. But when the bombs started to fall, Cale Weston volunteered to go as a diplomat. I was against the Iraq war, but you know, at that point in my career, definitely believed I needed to be there. He stayed for a grueling length of time, three straight years in Iraq, then three in Afghanistan, and back to Iraq for another seven consecutive years at war. I really was motivated to just try and save lives. Most Americans have never fought in a war or even had our lives disrupted by one. Does being so far removed from the loss and trauma make us more willing to send our military into battle? This is the second of two episodes we're dedicating to thinking deeply about the consequences of war. And today we're especially interested in understanding how the decision to fight gets made. What leads a leader or society to look at the inevitable devastation that war causes and say, we're doing it anyway? Answer that question, and you've got a path to peace. Because as one global conflict expert we will hear from later says, war is so ruinous that most of the time adversaries prefer to loathe one another in peace. The more clear and painful the cost of war is to those who are deciding to fight— the more likely they are to choose peace instead. Today, everyday Americans are further from the consequences of war than we have ever been. There is no military draft. 20 years of fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan has been done by professional military service members deploying over and over again. This war was sort of subcontracted out to our military, which is a very small percentage of our country. Former U.S. diplomat Cale Weston again. Unlike my dad and uncles who were all in Vietnam and there was a military draft, a lot of those conversations about Vietnam were happening in a lot of kitchens and, and living rooms across America. These wars were never in that category. And then I think it just became easy for the autopilot to, to be put on, uh, whether it was a Democratic administration or a Republican administration. These were sort of wars that were being fought by generals, and the generals would ask for more resources, and generally they got it. Uh, meanwhile, you know, people were going to the mall to shop. When the Iraq War started, Cale Weston had the option to stay home. The State Department wasn't ordering diplomats into the war. But Weston thought he could go and help minimize some of the damage. Yeah, I wasn't naive about what one person could do, but I do believe, you know, when you're 28 or 30 years old, I knew that probably some of the most rewarding work, but also the most difficult work was going to be in Iraq. Not long after arriving in Baghdad, 
Weston ended up in Fallujah. Which was really the cauldron of the war. It was where the biggest battle of the Iraq War happened. He was there as a civilian, representing the U.S. State Department. Half of his job was as a political advisor to the Marines. The other half was working with local Iraqis, trying to win their support to rebuild Fallujah physically and politically. So whether it was the Marine corporals out on patrol or the Iraqi mayors that were being targeted and assassinated, we were all just trying to stabilize the situation so that fewer people were hurt and killed. What were you able to do? Give me an example of something where you feel like, at the very least, you were able to lower the cost of this war by, I don't know, even just a few lives. Yeah, I'll give you a couple examples. I love the Marine Corps, but when the Marine Corps proposed to Burm uh, to literally move massive amounts of soil around the provincial capital of Ambar province, which is this massive violent province dominated by the Sunni Arab population, I raised my hand and said to a general, um, I'm not so sure that berming an entire provincial capital is a good strategy. What is the implication of, of berming a city? Like, why would that not be conce- considered a welcome thing? Well, the, the military argument would be to, to encircle the insurgents, right? So that it becomes a lot harder for bad guys, terrorists, insurgents to move in and out of the capital. The other side is if you're a business owner or you're a student or you're even the provincial governor, you've suddenly got, you know, your whole city surrounded by a massive wall of dirt. We opted not to do it because I think that the cost of that was going to translate into having more of the local population turn against us, right? Mm. And we would be creating more insurgents. We would be creating more friction. And we would actually be isolating the governor and some of the local Iraqi leaders politically. Were, were any of these leaders glad that, that we had gotten rid of Saddam Hussein? Did they see that as like, you know, because that was a big justification for America. It was like, this guy's yeah. terrible. We need to go free these people from this awful dictator. Yeah, I did not find a lot of people who were who were advocating Saddam Hussein and the fear he brought to that country uh, that they wanted to continue. But they would say, at least under Saddam, we kind of knew where the lines were. Now we've got car bombs on the corners. Our kids are, are in danger going to school. So while they were not defending what Saddam had done to their country at all, as one of them told me, He said, I used to know my hometown of Fallujah. I no longer do because of all of the chaos and all the violence that had been introduced through the war. Would you you be willing to tell us about one one of your collaborators, a relationship that you had, who that person was, um, one of them that maybe still weighs on you? It's an incredibly important question because I think that Having spent three years in Fallujah, I got to know Fallujans, and that's one of the reasons why I stayed. I'll give you the one that's probably the most important to me. It's the the last Grand Mufti of Fallujah, Sheikh Hamza. And he was a religious cleric, the top leader, just like the Pope in Rome, uh, who had a lot of influence with uh, the people because he was just an incredibly, I wouldn't even say charismatic is the right word. He was a soulful leader, and I picked that up the first time he walked into the room. Well, Hamza had so much credibility with the people of Fallujah and the people in Ambar province that he was using that wasta, which is an Arabic word for influence, to try and help us get home sooner and also save a lot of Iraqi lives. But by supporting that role, working with us, we were making him more vulnerable to terrorist intimidation. And I'll always remember when he told me, he said, you know, Mr. Kale, um, they want me to support demonstrations, that he was having insurgents, terrorists walk into his mosque and say, hey, Sheikh, Hamza, you're the Grand Mufti. We want you to help turn the people against the Americans, and he wouldn't do it. What eventually happened is he was assassinated. And I think he probably knew um, that he was a dead man walking, a dead Grand Mufti walking, um, but he still worked with us. And I think there's a part of me that looks back and thinks that's the definition of courage. Um, bravery in a war zone, we give medals for as we should. But I wish we could talk about moral courage the same way because I saw a lot of that uh, in people like Sheikh Hamza. You know, decades later, I look back and wish I had had the courage or the foresight to say, you know, 
stay home. It's safer for you to not collaborate with me or with the Marine leaders or with even the civil affairs units because we're not patient. Our country's not a patient country. We don't have the political will to see this through. And I think I knew that, but I also know that by being there and saying, okay, we've got millions or tens of millions of dollars to spend to try and rebuild your war-torn city, half that city was leveled. We could at least try and do some things that would stabilize or help parts of the communities deal with war. Another part of your job while you were there was to pay money, compensation to the families of Iraqis who were killed or who had experienced losses, economic losses, right, as a result of the fighting. What was a meeting like that like? Very difficult. And even though, you know, our lawyers, the the, the, the judge advocates in the Marine Corps, even the State Department lawyers would always say we're not admitting guilt when we hand over money. Um, it was blood money. And we put a dollar amount on lives. Uh, it was about $5,000 with a general's approval that we would hand over. And I often was the one handing the money over. I always felt that it, while it was not required, we absolutely should do it and did do it. And yet I'll never forget what it was like to be in a room when three of the sons of local leaders in Fallujah who had been assassinated took that blood money. They were taking our money because they needed it. But you could tell um, they were devastated uh, and angry and I don't know if there's a word I can think about to describe what that was like. But rather than not do it, we did it. That's, I think, where we Americans like to think we have a certain level of um, compassion, a sense of right and wrong. Um, but war warps all of that. You can go in with the best intentions. You can go in with the millions of dollars in funds to try and do good things. But war corrupts and corrodes everything. I think the big lesson is, you know, don't look away. You know, we need to acknowledge... Um, when we see things that make us feel uncomfortable or things that maybe require us to continue to have a role as much as we can. If we know that there are Afghans who have been relocated uh, as refugees, maybe it was in the news six months ago, but are we actually finding ways to try and, try and help them? What are we as citizens gonna do to make sure that the next time our leaders who are elected at a very divisive time are talking about Ukraine, or other parts of the world, are we going to shrug our shoulders and say, well, it doesn't really affect me or my family? Or are we going to hold them to a higher standard before, um, before another war starts? Because again, war should truly be the last resort. And if it's not, uh, that's on us. Kale Weston is a former State Department official. He's author of The Mirror Test, America at War in Iraq and Afghanistan. Kale, thanks a lot for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Julie. Appreciate the opportunity. While everyday Americans have been insulated from the cost of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan from the very start, more than 7,000 American service members died in those conflicts. In the face of that loss, the U.S. military invested heavily in ways to lower the toll within its own ranks. Today, it can wage and win a war without putting a single American in harm's way. How does that affect our willingness to fight? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Wes Bryant joined the U.S. Air Force several years before 9-11. So when the war on terror started... I began deploying back and forth between Afghanistan and Iraq over the years. After the initial invasions, the U.S. military shifted out of attack mode and into security maintenance and counterinsurgency. And that is when the human cost of the war to American service members really began to escalate. You know, a lot of our operations were reduced down to just what's called 
uh, combat reconnaissance patrols. It was drive around and just have presence. Uh, and a lot of that ended up in U.S. casualties from IEDs, especially early on before we, uh, you know, because we went in with uh, non-armored Humvees initially. You know, they, they just frankly took a lot of us out uh, very easily. And at that point then, was it harder for you to, it was harder for you to justify in your own mind why, why you were there, why, why we were taking these risks? Is that fair to say? It, it was, Absolutely. More than half of all American casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan were caused by IEDs, improvised explosive devices that are cheap to make and easy to plant in the path of a military patrol. Even when the military began using armored Humvees and actively sweeping their routes, IEDs remained a leading cause of civilian casualties and created a crisis of traumatic brain injury among U.S. veterans. American news outlets began regularly reporting on limb amputations, brain damage, PTSD, and an epidemic of suicide linked to IED injuries. The American public started clamoring for the wars to end. Meanwhile, the U.S. military focused on how to fight without endangering their troops. Take Wes Bryant's job as a JTAC. A joint terminal attack controller, which are the uh, personnel who are charged with deploying on the ground, controlling the actual airstrikes, whether it be from fighter and bomber aircraft or drones, as we call them now. Mm -hmm. um, basically playing puppet master with all our air power. Now, for most of Wes Bryant's 20 years in the military, being a JTAC meant being in the middle of a fight, on the ground, ducking fire and radioing instructions to pilots, dropping bombs from above. As drones and satellite technology got more sophisticated, he'd occasionally do that job from a remote command center, but still only if there was a specific strike planned on a high-value target like an al-Qaeda leader. Now, all of a sudden, that's all we were doing. All the strikes that we were conducting were from an operations center. The real turning point was the rise of ISIS. These terrorists are unique in their brutality. They execute captured prisoners. They kill children. They enslave, rape, and force women into marriage. They threaten a religious minority with genocide. And in acts of barbarism, they took the lives of two American journalists. President Obama announced America was going to war against ISIS in September 2014. Uniquely brutal as ISIS was, the decision had not come easily. The U.S. military had been withdrawing from Iraq by that point, and President Obama had promised to end the war. So the idea of going back in was hard to stomach. But then, U.S. military officials caught ISIS on a satellite video feed, committing a war crime in real time. Wes Bryant explains. In a town up uh, in the Sinjar region, Sinjar uh, mountain range, ISIS is uh, having about 80 men dig and there's, you know, a little bit of back and forth going on in the operations center saying, hey, maybe they're having them dig um, trenches, uh, you know, for reinforcement against Kurdish forces. Because they would, they would have uh, civilians do that as well. Uh, and, but it became very obvious what was going on once they stopped digging and lined them all up. And then the, the, the execution was caught on camera. Um, and that was, one of a few events that were the pinnacle that's kind of turned the tide and caused the Obama administration to say, okay, let's start doing something. Days later, American journalist James Foley was beheaded by ISIS in a video the terrorists circulated online. Public sentiment in America shifted dramatically. ISIS had killed one of our own and boasted of it right there on camera. We couldn't let them get away with that. I can announce that America will lead a broad coalition to roll back this terrorist threat. But, said President Obama, it will not involve American combat troops fighting on foreign soil. America would fight this war only if we could avoid the steepest cost of it. But how would that work exactly? We'd never fought a war without at least some troops on the ground. The Obama administration was very adamant about not being boots on the ground in Iraq. Those were the handcuffs we got given. So we had to improvise from there. What they improvised was a strike cell. Wes Bryant was one of its JTACs when the fight against ISIS got underway. For the first time in U.S. military history, 
every decision in a war was being made from a heavily protected room far from the front lines. Well, at least for the Americans. Iraqis and Kurds were fighting on the ground. They would send word to their commanders, who would send word to the American commanders calling the shots. And that kind of daisy chain of communication would go back and forth. Bryant was still puppet master for all the air power in the fight. He just didn't need body armor anymore. Here's how it might play out. We'll talk about a water treatment facility in Ramadi where Iraqi forces were being overrun by ISIS. They were taking casualties. Um, We would then get a set of F-16s and a Predator drone overhead. Um, We try to get eyes on what's going on on the ground. A lot of times you would see gunfire going on between two units, but you had no idea who was who. And you're Um, watching this on a screen in a trailer at the Baghdad airport. Correct. Yep. And so what we had to do was coordinate with the Iraqi operations center, who is in direct, would be in direct contact with those Iraqi forces. Because a lot of times you could not delineate um, between the two forces. They looked exactly the same on the ground. So in this this particular one, we had uh, the Iraqi forces that they're pinned down and they gave us a grid and boom, our, we got our Predator drone uh, looking right at it. We had the feed and everything was right there exactly how uh, the Iraqis had explained it. And they were within not even a couple hundred meters of each other. So from there, we um, coordinated with the Iraqi force and let them know what was going to go on, told them don't move because we're about to bring in bombs on the ISIS target to your north and then got a pair of F-16s in and dropped a couple of um, bombs, I believe Maverick missiles on as well, if I remember, remember right, and, uh, and, and freed that Iraqi unit, which had already taken casualties at that point. Over the next several years, strike cell operations like that were able to reduce ISIS to a shadow of itself and retake virtually all of the territory it had captured. And so that was massively successful. And I can definitely say I'm proud to have been, you know, some, some part in that. When you, when you were um, coordinating the fight and dropping the bombs at such a remove from the front lines, was it difficult to sort of stay in touch with the fact that these were lives that hung in the balance? I'd say it wasn't difficult for us as JTACs who had been doing it uh, for a long time because we had so much forward experience. We knew exactly what the guys on the ground were going through. Um, We knew exactly the consequences when those impacts are made. And some of us had seen civilian casualties, whether by accident or negligence, you know, over the years. And we knew the consequences of that as well. Um, I'd say that that is a danger. There's a danger in that when you have younger, a younger force that hasn't experienced the forward fight. They've only ever been uh, carrying on this fight, a fight through, you know, video feeds and yep. remote controlled drones. Yeah, I'd say, if, you know, for people like that, not everyone, but um, I'd say there's more of a danger of it feeling more like a video game because they don't have, just, they just don't have that reference. America's war with ISIS resulted in the death of 106 U.S. troops mostly from injury or disease not related to combat. There's no precise count of how many Iraqi soldiers died, but it's at least 26,000. And the nonprofit watchdog group Air Wars claims 13,000 civilians also died in U.S. strike cell operations aimed at ISIS. The U.S. military says it can't confirm most of those deaths and estimates a much smaller figure of 1,400 civilian casualties. Strike cells have now become standard anywhere America's fighting. But the military has also acknowledged the high risk of collateral damage when fighting remotely. In 2021, a strike cell carried out a drone attack on a suspected terrorist in Kabul, who turned out to be an aid worker. He and nine others died. Seven were children. Still, Wes Bryant believes there are enough safeguards in place for strike cells to be a responsible way to fight. Not to be an apologist for the tragedies that have occurred, because we've we've had tragedies um, that were pure accident and a couple or a few that have been from negligence. Um, and I'd say the Kabul strike was one of those. Um, but when you quantify those together with the really the thousands of strikes that we carried out over the years um, that were successful, 
with zero to little collateral damage and no civilian casualties. That's not to discredit, you know, in my opinion, even one civilian casualty in the effort is one too much. And certainly for anyone carrying out the strike operations, um, when when civilians are hit and it's confirmed that they are hit, it hits hard. I know of a few people that have been involved uh, directly and uh, I even know of suicides that happened as a result of it. But we've also got to look at these statistics, if you will. Um, so really, it's, it's, there's a comparatively low incident of verified legitimate civilian casualties compared with uh, the amount of strikes we, we've carried out. But that said, I think there's always things that we can do better. How can a military stay alert to those human costs? I think in general, the U.S. military does a good job of putting out to the force what its ethical foundation is. But a lot of times when you're in it as an operator in the military uh, and you're just back and forth, just kind of jobbing it, as we say, sometimes you need to remind it a little better. I'd say over the years of the, the war on terror, there probably could have been like a cultural reset a little bit mm. um, by the military leadership to say, Let's reset and refocus you guys and give you some background and understand why we're here, what we're doing, what the consequences of things going wrong are. Because uh, otherwise you get you could just get wrapped up in what you're doing. You start ignoring or forgetting the other aspects. And Wes Bryant also worries about the American people losing sight of the costs of war. Yeah, you know, as especially as we have such turmoil right now internally, and you see these, what some people call these roots or, or seeds of um, civil war beginning. I don't think we're anywhere close to that yet, but perhaps closer than we ever have been since the actual civil war. Uh, man, I just want to, it's like you want to take some of these people that we, we hear them talking about this, uh, that we've got we've to fight and go to war because our whatever our ideology is isn't being carried out. And, you know, you see these, this mass demonizing of another political side, right? Um, I kind of just want to infuse all my experiences uh, into some of these people and and hope to change their mind because um, war and killing is just not, uh, it's not great, it's not glorious. It's, it's a very ugly um, game. It changes you and uh, it's something that a, a society doesn't recover from for generations. Wes Bryant retired from the U.S. Air Force in 2018 after 20 years as an enlisted airman. His book, co-written with retired U.S. Army Major General Dana Petard about establishing strike cells to fight ISIS, is called Hunting the Caliphate. This urge countries and militaries have to lower the price they pay for war is natural. It's also a clue to finding peace. The more painful war feels to the leader or society choosing it, the less likely they are to fight. So the actual natural state of humanity is to have adversaries. But I like to say that our natural state is to loathe in peace. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. So what I like to tell people is if they remember one thing, it's to remember that war is incredibly costly. That's why we don't do it most of the time. And so every reason we fight is a reason that a society or its leaders overlook those costs. This is Chris Blattman. He's a professor of global conflict studies in the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. And I just wrote a book called Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. So the reason we have focused so much this hour on the cost of war is because Blatman believes therein lies the way to peace. Choosing war is always a calculation of benefits and costs. But in an honest analysis, the costs will always outweigh the benefits. The only way to justify war is to somehow overlook those costs. And there's basically five main ways that happens, sort of like five logical possibilities. 
And when you know which of the five are at play in a conflict, you've got the roadmap to peace. Now, it only takes one to lead to war. But for the sake of illustration, let's think about a conflict where all five happen to apply. Russia and Ukraine. So maybe the first thing worth pointing out is actually this idea that most of the time we don't fight is even true in the case of Russia and Ukraine. For 20 years, Vladimir Putin tried everything possible short of invasion to co-opt Ukraine. Assassinations, dark money, uh, support for separatists, on and on and on. And, And so it was really a last resort. And likewise, Vladimir Putin hasn't had to use violence or invasion to co-opt most of his other neighbors, like Belarus or Kazakhstan. There's been 30 years of basically the, the dissolution of the Soviet Empire, and it's been mostly peaceful. Although although not necessarily um, democratic or upholding human rights or, right. or, or free of tension. So it's so peace, peace, but yeah. it's not happy and harmonious. Correct. And I, I'm just saying, like, we don't fight. And that doesn't mean things have to be equal or happy. I mean, like, Russia is a good example of a peaceful place where people are oppressed, right? Most oppression is, quote-unquote, peaceful. I mean, of course it's violent and oppressive, but it's there isn't an armed conflict between the Russian people and the government because it it's just too ruinous and too costly. And so most oppressed peoples don't rise up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not trying to say that's good or bad. I'm just trying to point out that actually most of the time we don't fight, even when oppressed. Even when the world might consider you fully justified in rising yes, up. Yes, absolutely. So the question is, like, why did, why did Putin overlook the costs and risks and decide to invade? And, and why didn't Ukraine, in some ways like Belarus or like Kazakhstan, just stand down? Um, and I think... It fits well into these sorts of five explanations that social science has, has brought us. So the first and maybe the most common, I think of is unchecked leaders. So Vladimir Putin's an autocrat. He doesn't bear most of those costs of war, right? He's not accountable to the people who bear the costs of war. And so throughout history, um, unchecked rulers, especially autocrats, have been much more likely to go to war. Because they can send young men and women to the front to die, and they're not worried about getting reelected. Correct. It doesn't necessarily interfere with their thievery or their own, you know, kleptocratic control of this this state. It's even true a little bit for democratic leaders. The more insulated a democratic leader is, uh, the more likely they are to to choose violence because they don't have to, they're not fully accountable. So so a, a, a president or prime minister in a country where women don't vote or a majority or a huge ethnic group doesn't vote, is one that's inherently going to be more war biased, mm. more ready to use violence, because they don't have to consider the costs of war to those people. The second reason we ignore the costs is actually not so much because we ignore them, but because we're willing to pay them. There's something else we gain. Uh, this is actually one of the big stories you hear about Vladimir Putin and the reasons for war, is that he wants personal glory or glory for the Russian empire or has some greater ideal for what Russia should be. And so he's willing to pay the price of war for this ethereal thing. And maybe some fraction of the Russian public are, right? Would that also explain why sometimes groups might opt to fight even if they're an underdog because, you know, they're fighting for... Exactly. For, for some belief, for some ideology or for justice or morality or something like that. Exactly. So sometimes we fight for noble things, and it could be the Ukrainians who were offered semi-sovereignty, who were offered a pretty broad deal, and unlike Belarus, said, no way, we refuse on principle mm. to accept that deal. Why? You know, it's we should take that deal in any sort of rational sense, but not if we value this thing we, we call liberty. I think there's a real parallel to the American Revolution. A tyrannical superpower offered a weaker republic semi-sovereignty. And and most of their other colonial possessions had accepted that grudgingly because war was too costly. And war was going to be hugely costly and probably not even won by the revolutionaries. Nonetheless, they said no way. Why? Because, you know, John Adams thought that the true revolution was in the hearts of the American people, mm-hmm. that it was, it was a slow revolution of ideals, that people decided, I'm simply not going to accept this raw deal. And, and so I see a real parallel to what went on in Ukraine. The third one you also hear in the press a lot, and it's this idea that Putin made a mistake, that he's this isolated, insulated leader uh, who had bad intelligence 
and should never have invaded in the first place. And, and this is sort of one of a, an example of a whole class of mistakes that political scientists call misperceptions. He got it wrong. And there's, there's at least a couple of reasons our leaders can get this wrong. Uh, one is just their psychological biases, a tendency to overconfidence. So you know it's costly, but you maybe underestimate the cost. You overestimate your chances of victory. Perhaps your opponent does as well. And in those circumstances, you both choose to fight because the deal on offer, you sort of say, well, well I could get better from war. Why would I, why would I accept peace on these terms? Mm. Um, so so we, we talked about autocratic leaders who can ignore the costs of war. We talked about when war gives you something that that peace cannot, this ethereal thing, and we've talked about misperceptions. The thing that people often forget, though, is just how uncertain uh, this decision is to go to war. Mm. And that's the fourth category. Like, think back to before Russia's invasion. Think about just how uncertain was Ukraine's strength and pluckiness and resolve, how uncertain was Russian military capability, and how uncertain was Western unity and resolve on something like sanctions. And the idea that Russia would get a bad draw on all three of these things was always in the realm of possibility, but nobody really predicted that, least of all Vladimir Putin. And so amidst this uncertainty, you know, war is always a gamble. We have diplomacies and intelligence services and lots of ways to try to reduce that uncertainty. And that's why we often don't go to war, because we do move away from that uncertainty. This creates like this strategic dilemma where you're, you know, just like in poker, when you're worried your opponent's bluffing, it's never optimal to fold all the time and it's never optimal to call all the time. And so Putin got a bad draw, at least on some of the things that he was gambling on. And right. the consequence then is that, what, the war is more costly for him or for his for Russia and or it goes on longer than it might have. Right. And, you know, I think a sign that I think some of these, some wars are driven by uncertainty is that actually most wars are short. Like the, if you look over the last hundred years, the average war was less than a hundred days. Let's start talks. Let's draw a line of armistice uh, and, and, and stop this most costly aspect. Okay. Okay. And then the fifth and final one is, is something that political scientists and economists call a commitment problem. And it comes from when you can't trust the other side to, to abide by whatever peaceful deal you arrange. And that can happen for a couple of reasons. The most common one, and what some people think is one of the most common causes of the longest wars in history, is that there's one rising power and one falling power. And the the falling power, the diminishing power, has a chance before they diminish to lock in their advantage, to basically crush their opponent before they rise. And so they launch what's called a preventative war because they can't really trust the opponent not to take advantage of their power in the future. And did that, Vladimir Putin have a, have a reason to sort of strike while he had the chance when it came to Ukraine? I'd say this is the least of the five for understanding why this war began, but but I think it's a, commitment problems are important for understanding why it persists. So I, I wouldn't say there was a dramatic power shift, but but there was this inexorable seeming shift by Ukraine towards the West and towards democracy. And this was not going to get any easier for Russia to uh, to take care of in future. If anything, their power, their military power, their economic growth seemed to have peaked. And so there was a little bit of a now or never element to their invasion and, and some of the timing. But I don't think it was so important that it explains the war on its own. I see. I do think this idea that you can't trust the other side to stick to a deal is a real reason why it's hard to find peace right now. Okay, so just recapping quickly. Most of the time, nations choose not to fight because war is just too costly. But there are these five main reasons a country might overlook those costs. First, and most common, you're an unchecked leader who can ignore the cost because you're not accountable to the people. Second, you've got some intangible incentive to fight, like democratic ideals or personal glory. Third, you make mistakes in calculating the costs because you're overconfident or you get bad information. Fourth, it's uncertain just how good your chances of winning are, but you figure you can win quickly, so you take the gamble. 
And fifth, you can't trust the other side to commit to a peace agreement, so you launch a preemptive strike, hoping to lock in your advantage while you can. Now, Vladimir Putin had all five of these drivers going on. Does that mean he was right to invade? So I don't like to use the word right. For me personally, the answer is clear. Like it was just, it was a selfish and violent and heinous act and it was illegal. So so it's not correct. Was it was it like the strategically optimal choice given what he valued and given his insulation from power? Uh, you, yeah, you can make an argument that that amidst the uncertainty, given the the drift of Ukraine away and the peak of his power and the fact that he doesn't bear these costs and the fact that he presumably cares deeply about these ethereal things like Russian greatness and personal glory, mm. that was his optimal choice. So, so what are the keys to preventing war? We've talked about the five things that are most common right. drivers. Um, what, what are the most common paths to peace breaking out instead of war? So, yeah, if we fight because we overlook the costs of war, then every path to peace is some way that focuses the attention of a society or its leaders on those costs or actually makes them pay attention to even more costs. So one of the things that I think has happened incrementally over the last few hundred years is that our societies have gotten more entangled and intertwined and interdependent. That makes war more costly. And if our economy is entangled with our adversaries, then when we go to war, uh, we actually lose something that comes from that trade or that interaction or, or whatever it is that we were getting from them. And that just makes that just makes finding some peaceful agreement that much more attractive. Could this explain why um, why it would be... A- I mean, that could be a deterrent for the United States getting into an armed conflict with China because we are so economically intertwined. No, it absolutely is. And uh, and, and any economic disengagement between the U.S. and China potentially reduces that insulation we have. Mm. Um, likewise, you know, a lot of people thought, I think correctly, that Russia's economic entanglements with Europe would 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 be a buffer against war. Uh, I think it has been. I mean, Germany's reluctance to punish Russia in many respects to join the war, and eventually they did. But in some sense, the degree to which there is a reluctance in that society, I think, does come from that economic entanglement. Reliance on Russian natural gas and energy. Yeah, amongst many other things. Um, The other thing is, like, so many of those five things were accentuated by autocratic power. So... So anything that checks t- tends to check the power of autocratic leaders tends to be pacifying. Mm. And so th- and that doesn't have to be elections. It could be elections, but it could just be uh, the the spreading of power across a, a party rather than an individual or a cabal, or it could be the spreading of power across arms of government or across levers, le- levels of government. Right, which is essentially what what Americans think of as checks and balances. I think checks and balances have historically been one of the most pacifying forces uh, in the world. Most of the time, checks and balances in society come from other actors within that society, you know, gaining some bargaining power and and seizing that power from from the autocrat, and uh, and that doesn't happen quickly. How effective do you think things like UN peacekeeping forces going into a hot spot, or you know, or or like a a powerful ally of one side or the other, sort of like trying to you know kind of get in the middle and be like, don't fight because otherwise, here's what here's what consequences we're going to impose on you guys. Yeah, yeah. So we have a whole bunch of really slow moving things that are hard for us to affect, like interdependence and checks and balances, and so and yet if you're like a politician or country or concerned citizen, you're like, what do we do now? And what kind of tools do we have? And so the answer is, well, actually, we, we have some decent tools. I think peacekeeping missions, when they work, work especially because they're explicitly trying to reduce uncertainty uh, between both sides, you know, c- counting forces and weapons. And they're explicitly trying to solve commitment problems by basically being a third party and coming in and saying, we're going to guarantee this peace for the next 10 or 15 years while you guys 
establish your institutions and you've worked out this deal. Mm-hmm. So, and that works a little bit. Sanctions are another example of a tool. They don't work that well, but it's to say, well, we have unchecked leaders who are pursuing these intangible ethereal interests and they're making mistakes and misperceptions. We're going to give them some counter incentive to we're going we're gonna to actually make war look really costly and make them pay attention to things that they're ignoring. That's essentially what sanctions are supposed to do. And, and they don't do it that well, but they, they help a little bit. Um, wh- what value do you think uh, international organizations like the UN Security Council have in terms of preventing war? I mean, it obviously wasn't capable, right. wasn't capable of preventing the, you know, Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. Yeah, so the UN Security Council is incredibly unequal. Uh, when when there's a conflict in a place that is not a strategic ally of one member or the other of, of the UN Security Council, then I think that organization and its tools like peacekeepers have been pretty effective at at, at least helping peace emerge or ke- and keeping conflict from breaking out. Uh, when... When one of these great powers is involved, whether it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine or the U.S. invasion of Iraq, it's it's a pretty ineffective. It's it's just not built to counter that. He's referring to the fact that only five countries are permanent members of the U.N. Security Council with the ability to veto any resolution. They are Russia, China, the United States, France, and the U.K., which were the victors in World War II. And the U.N. arose from that war. It's becoming harder to justify those five countries still having such disproportionate power over international decisions of peace and security. But Blattman says it's also hard to imagine that changing anytime soon, since those five nations would have to give up their control of the UN Security Council. In the meantime, Blattman says there is more America could be doing to promote international norms that discourage war, like signing on to the International Criminal Court. This is a court that would prosecute war crimes and hold all leaders and armies equally accountable to certain rules of rules of engagement. Um, that that's a kind of a sanction, right? That says, okay, uh, if we prosecute an illegal war or within war, if we prosecute it in such a way that commits huge human rights abuses, we'll be held accountable. That's predictable and calculable. Therefore, we're less likely to do it. That that's pretty basic. And, and that's the kind of system of international law that I think would lead to a more peaceful world and, and if war breaks out, makes it less likely to result in terrible abuses. And the, America, partly out of its concern that it's, you know, it would not like to be constrained by those rules, doesn't sign on and therefore everybody else isn't nearly as constrained by those rules. And, and that's just one example of, a, of what I think of as a lot of sort of short-sighted calculus that that essentially puts us in this world where we have these adversaries like Russia and China doing things that we wish they wouldn't do, and then we wonder, oh, why aren't they? Constri- why you know why aren't why don't why isn't there a rules based international order that stops them from doing this? And you're like, well, it's because many of our governments have undermined that rules based international order again and again and again. On the other hand, says Blattman, I think I think we have a set of international organizations that just didn't exist in the same way. Uh, or with the same depth of commitment as they did decades ago. I think more peace is a really positive outcome of that. And I think even if we don't buy into things like the International Criminal Court, you know, there, there's a hundred other treaties, whether they govern the use of nuclear arms and atomic energy and whatnot that diplomats have put together and the United States has endorsed. And I think these have created a body of international law and international system and something that looks a little bit like a rules-based international order. And and, and in many ways, that's gotten better each year. I think the the sanctions regime that was put in place for Russia isn't just a one-time thing. I think that was a show of unity and a a kind of a practice round for the next possible great power war and and, an invasion of, of some nation by another. And I think that's important. And, and in that case, it was un, it was unusual and important step because you had a lot of nations accepting that those sanctions were going to impose costs on themselves as well. That if we sanction Russian oil, then our gas prices are going to go up, and yet you had nations being willing to make that choice. Correct. 
And and it's imperfect. The majority of nations in the world haven't signed on to that. So I don't want to pretend like this is like some magic solution, but but this is sort of a, an amazing degree of unity. Um, and 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 I think the world can do better and have more. I, I think I think if if there was an opportunity to use this moment to institutionalize that a little bit to set up some rules that where where then most nations sort of say well we're not, maybe we won't sign into this sanctions regime but let's set a set of rules in which we all agree that we're going to sign on to this in future if that's predictable and calculable by some autocrat that oh boy this is this is now more likely to happen and I'm no longer going to be surprised that would be a deterrent in future and so we've inched closer to that and that's like a message at the book a book is it the, the the path to peace you don't sort of doesn't come in sort of leaps and bounds and right away it happens in this incremental way which has been incredibly successful but often hard to appreciate and get excited about but that doesn't mean we we shouldn't actually be optimistic Chris Blattman, thank you so much for your time today, for uh, for your careful analysis. I really appreciate this. No, thank you. Blattman is a professor at the University of Chicago in the Harris School of Public Policy and author of Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me, James Hoops, and Cole Cummings, with help from Elizabeth Miller. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschussel, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. And if you haven't already, would you take a moment to leave a rating or give us a review on the podcast app where you listen? That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. So just one more quick thing before we go. Each week on Top of Mind, we try to bring you perspectives on an issue that prompt you to think a little more deeply about where you stand on it. And we want you to feel a little challenged, a little humbled even, because that's where the breakthroughs happen. If we can muster the will to stick with that discomfort rather than back away from it, there is a real opportunity to find some new empathy for a perspective we hadn't considered before. And hopefully get even more clear about why we see things the way we do. So we're launching a new series called Stick With It, where we talk to people about having that kind of experience in their personal or professional lives. Can you think of a time when you encountered a perspective that felt challenging or uncomfortable, but you chose to stick with that discomfort? And you're glad you did? Email your thoughts to topofmind at byu.edu and we'll be in touch.